there are lots of people and there are lots of different jobs. And if I were to ask you, where do you work? What do you do? Or, or what did you do if you're retired? Or what do you want to do if you're a student? And we went around, I could get lots of answers from lots of different people. I'd be amazed at how many people have so many different jobs. And even aside from that, if I were to just ask you, what do you have to do today? Or what do you have to do this week? What are the tasks that are on your agenda? I suspect a number of you would be quite busy. Oh, I've got to do this, this, this. I know that there's a table right there where most of the people have to leave halfway through my lesson. They said, don't feel like you said something wrong when we get up and walk out. We've got to go catch a flight. And I said, well, if you'll give me like a little nod, you know, before you leave, I'll say something really, you know, like, and then everybody will think y'all are getting up upset over what I said, and it'll be pretty funny. So... They said, no, they didn't want to do that. But, but you've got a list of things you've got to do, even if it's go to the airport or if it's whatever. A list of tasks, to-do list. And I bring this up because Paul, the Apostle Paul, in my mind, was a task theologian. He was a task theologian. You see, Paul had things he was trying to do, tasks he needed to, to, to accomplish, ideas and problems he needed to solve, and much of his theology comes in by way of the task at hand. He's not simply writing a theological treatise. If you take even the theological treatise of Romans, it was a task book. It was trying to help a church reintegrate after the Jewish Christian community had been kicked out of Rome and leaving the Gentile Christian community running the church. And then the Jewish community came back in. And how do they integrate with each other? That was the task Paul was trying to help facilitate. And the theology just accompanied the task. And I say that because today when we look at Philippians, I've entitled the lesson, Catch the Task and Catch the Theology. Because there is, in today's lesson, both task and theology. So I've divided it up into three different tasks three different jobs. We'll look at task one, task two, and task three. And as we look at those, we'll see if it makes sense. Now, some of this is a step back into last week because we need the context of last week to make sense of this week and also because I didn't have time to fully develop last week. So task number one that Paul gave to the Philippians <clears throat> was the job of rejoicing. Rejoice. Be happy and joyful. Be, be, be uh, uh, expressive in your life of, of the deep-seated joy that we've got as believers. And we find it in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Kyratean kuriopantote, palanero kyrate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Now, I told you last week, Paul wrote this passage in a way to make it something easily memorized. We don't often think in those terms. And there's so much we don't think about. Capes, you missed this because you weren't here last week. But I made a point last week, no, it was two weeks ago, when Paul writes to Euodia and Syntyche. And he does it in such a, an even-handed way. He does it alphabetically even on their names. And we think, well, 
Who does things alphabetically back in the ancient days? Well, of course they did. Jesus is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. They thought about things in that order as well. So Paul is very clever in what he writes and very careful. He doesn't just prattle off an email. We must remember that the ink, the quill, the papyrus were all extremely expensive. And so for him to write is not like us where we can just write on a computer. It's the difference between taking a picture today. You know, I've got my iPhone right here. Um, look, right here, right here, right now. I want to show you something. Smile. Boom. There you are. Okay. Now look at this. We can go right here. That's you. I just took your picture. Watch this. Watch this. You ready? Watch this. Boom. I just deleted your picture. You're gone. <laughs> but I can take your picture again if I want to. When I was growing up, oh, Oliver, when I was growing up, no can do on that. We had these things that had something in it called film. Film was not simply something on your teeth if you failed to brush them. Film was something in your camera, and it cost money to develop it. And you'd get like 12 or 24 or 36 pictures on that roll of film. And you wouldn't know if the picture turned out or not until you get it developed. So you were like real judicious. It was like everybody smile. And I mean smile and everybody say cheese at the count of three. We've got one shot to get this right. One, two, three, smile. Boom. Instead of, I'm just going to take 30 of them real quick and see which one I like. Well, it's the same with writing. We tend to think of writing as just, well, I hammer out an email, I'll edit this, and I'll edit that, or I'll hammer out a note, I'll tear that up, and start all over again. No, back in Paul's day, more valuable than film. And so Paul doesn't just write cavalierly. Writing as a process or dictation, which Paul was doing to a secretary probably, writing was something that was very deliberative, very carefully thought out. And so Paul writes in clever ways. And this is one of the best examples of cleverness in writing. Whoops. How have I? Let's go back to this. There we go. This is something where Paul wrote this passage in a way to make it memorable. He used assonance which means the sounds are related to each other the best example of that is the one I gave you a number of weeks ago the rain in Spain falls mainly in the plain and you've got an, 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 or an attitude of gratitude is not just a platitude you know there, there's little sing-songy ways in legal lore if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Okay. Related in sound makes it easier. When I was growing up, we'd learn nursery rhymes. Um, little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider and sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. Or as my dad would say, um, uh, Roses are red, violets are blue, most poems rhyme, but this one doesn't. <laughs> and, and it would stick out because it didn't seem to fit. See, our brains just work that way. 
There are tests that show you give someone 100 words that are random to memorize, and it takes 10 times longer than it will if you give it to them in a way where each stanza rhymes. 10 times longer. So Paul writes, and he writes with assonance, this, this related sound. He also writes, uh, you know, here, here's the sound. Kyrate, kurio, kyrate, ka, ka, ka. He's got the ka sound. He's got the te sound. Kyrate, pantote, kyrate. He's got that ending sound. He's got the puh sounds uh, with the pollen and the pantote. Uh, he's got the r sounds. Kyrate, kuriu, ero, kyrate. He's got the ruh. It's just all this related sounds. It makes it real sing-songy. And then he's got chiasm, which means he starts with one idea and he goes to another one, and then he mirrors that on the way out. And so he's got this kairate and curio, and pantote palin, and then ero kairate, and even the sounds echo each other within that word group. And this is a Greek letter key or chi, and so you've got a chiasm or a chiasm, depending on how you trans, uh, pronounce it. But rejoice in the Lord goes with, again, I'll say rejoice. Always and again go together as well. What Paul has done here is produce something that everybody can sing. He has produced something that everybody can remember. I made that point briefly last week, and I got an email from Larry Burgess. Larry, where are you? And Larry said, hey, here's your song. And Larry pointed out that the lyrics of Paul's Greek fit quite well with the song we learned in English, Rejoice in the Lord Always. So I have asked Brent to come up and to lead us first in the English version, and then we're going to sing it in Greek. All right, so this song in Greek, it's, it's Greek to me, so that's not my first language. But let's start with English. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. Do you all know that song? I should add, Clan Wilson sent me a video of their family singing that song, and I thought I should play that video, and then I realized, well, I didn't have time to check with their teenage children to see if that would be okay. I wasn't as worried about Oliver, but I decided not to play it. But it, between that and Larry Burgess, demands that we learn it in Greek. In Greek. Karate in curio, pantote, palinero, karate. You ready? You're going to sing it with me? You, you, see it, you see it on the wall. Here we go. Karate in curio pantote, palinero karate. Karate in curio pantote, palinero karate. Palinero karate, karate, palinero karate. Karate, karate, palinero karate. Yeah. So there you've got it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Because, you know, if you're watching a Superman movie, you see that insignia on his chest, that Superman, that S. 
I'm here to tell you that the, the distinctive mark of the Christian should be unmitigated, untrammeled, unrestrained joy. Why The, the, the super Christian needs to have joy emblazoned on their life. It needs to be the insignia. And don't think that's joy when things, you know, when the sun is out and the wind's behind you and you're sailing on smooth waters. That's joy in the midst of distress. Anybody can be joyful when it's a good day. But how about when the pressures of life are on you and you're in the pressure cooker? How about when things are, are, are demanding on your time and your energy? How about when you feel like things aren't going the way they ought to be going? How about when you didn't get enough sleep and you haven't eaten enough food? What about then? How do we as Christians show that we are different than the rest of the world? It's easy to get angry. It's easy to be short-tempered. It's easy to, to, to choose a route that is not Christian or productive. But the Christian needs to be someone who rejoices in everything. And that's task number one. Task number two. Be kind. See, if we're reading this in the Greek, Paul's using a, a, a type of verb that's an imperative. That means he's instructing us. He's telling us to do these things. He's not asking. He's not suggesting. He's not observing. He's demanding that this be what we do. Look at Philippians 4, 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Epiekis is the word that's translated reasonableness. It's a compound of epi and ekis. <laughs> um, and it, it is this word reasonableness, epiekis, is is an interesting word because it seems to almost have two different meanings in the ancient Greek. And if you were to just bring up a dictionary that most of us had when we were studying Greek in college, um, and you were to look the word up, you would see that it's not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Yielding, gentle, kind, courteous, tolerant. The word finds its usage a lot outside of the biblical sense, dealing with nobility, who are able to have somebody who offends them or doesn't do exactly what they should have done, and instead of the nobility slamming them, the nobility says, that's okay, and lets it slide. And that's a common usage outside. Now, if you look at it from a biblical perspective, you're going to find several passages that deal with this. I'll look at 1 Timothy 3.3, Titus 3.2, because those are both Paul using the same word. And then we'll look at James 3.1.7, and then we'll look at 1 Peter. But then, I'm going to show you the passage that I think is most important of all using this word. So let's start with 1 Timothy 3.3. Now again, this is Paul writing. And uh, uh, in, in my opinion, and so I say that because some people might fuss that over the Timothy books, but I, I think uh, I don't fuss that. Paul is talking about how someone should be uh, an episkopos in the Greek, uh, uh, an overseer, 
an elder, if you will, or a bishop. He says an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, who would want two wives, by the way? I mean, when you have one that's as amazing as mine. Koopa. Sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle. Epiochus. Gentle. Contrasted with being violent. Uh, uh, you, you know, I, I mean, somebody who, you, you say violent, you know, like, I don't hit people. Well, okay, good, that's, that's a positive. But violence isn't only, you know, some people are more violent with their words than they are their fist. Okay? And that's the opposite of how we're to be. Look at the Titus passage. Um, Titus 3.2. Paul says, um, remind the people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be epiechus, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And so those three ideas sort of come together. Avoiding quarreling, being epiechus, and showing perfect courtesy toward all people gives you a feel for what Paul's meaning in that word. Now, James uses it as well. James, the brother of Jesus, in writing 3, verse 17, he says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, epiechus. It's this idea of being gentle, being peaceful. If you look at it in 1 Peter 2, 8, 1 Peter 2.8, Peter writes and says, uh, a stone, huh? It's a different passage. Yeah, I've got the wrong passage up here. Um, forget what Peter said about it. <laughs> Instead, I got something better to show you. Let me show Nothing personal, Peter. Um, instead, I'd like you to look at one other passage. Look at Psalm 86.5. Now, if you're reading the Psalms in the Septuagint, in the Greek, it's 85.5 because the numbers get off. So this is the Greek Psalm that in our English Bibles would be Psalm 86, verse 5. And it's got something really cool to say. Psalm 86, verse 5. You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. You are good. You are epiechus. You are good and forgiving. That's this idea of the nobility in a sense. So this is a trait of God. So Paul doesn't say to just simply be epiechus. He doesn't say simply to, to be kind and to be gentle and to be courteous and to be tolerant. But he says, let your epiechus, which he assumes, let your reasonableness be known 
to all, to everyone. And here's what he says here. The, the, the idea of be known um, um, is, is this idea of, of uh, something that is there. Gnosko, uh, the verb means to arrive at knowledge. So let your reasonableness arrive to people so that they know it. Let it grow on them. As God's character and God's epiechus grows in you, and it's, uh, it should be epsilon, that works there, actually, that's fine. Epiechus grows in you, let it grow in the sight of others. Let this kindness and this gentleness that the psalm says is a characteristic of God be the characteristic as it grows in you, one that then you display to the world. See, Superman, we shouldn't just have the joy in our hearts. It should, that joy in our hearts is, should reflect itself in a kindness towards others. And so it's 2 Peter 1, 5, 8. Thank you. So now I told you a few minutes ago that Paul was a task theologian. Here's an example of where I mean that. Paul says to do this. To let this happen. But then he gives you a theology reason why. He says, Ho kurios ingus. The Lord is, as implied, near. The Lord is near. Think about this for a moment. This is theology wrapped around the task of what we need to do. You and I, need to not only rejoice in the Lord always, but we also need to let our gentleness, our kindness, our forbearance, our reasonableness, our not insisting on our right, be known to everyone. Let it grow on them as it's growing in us. Why? Because God's near. Now, scholars have a lot of fun with this. They say, well, what does Paul mean when he says the Lord is near? And there's basically three camps. Camp number one, Paul's talking in, big theology word here, eschatological terms. Paul's talking about the second coming. The idea is the Lord is near is a reference to the resurrected Messiah returning on earth in the clouds one day. And the scholars who ascribe to this go to a number of different passages in support of this idea. They'll go to, whoops, that disappeared. Go back. They'll go to, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. We have a little error here. Um, that was pretty clever of me. I managed to make everything appear and disappear at the same time in the PowerPoint. That takes a gift. Okay, let's try it again, and let's make it stay. They'll point to passages like Zephaniah 1, 7 and 14, which has a Greek translation, and, and you can read Zephaniah, and when you read it, you will see, hang on, Zephaniah 1, 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Now, the Greek there's got hemera, the word for day, and it talks about the day of the Lord being near. That's a very common expression in the prophetic Old Testament about the Lord coming. 
And so a number of scholars think Paul is referencing that, and it's not just in the Old Testament. You'll see Paul use the same type language. Paul uses it in a passage. Whoops, that went away, didn't it? Paul uses it in a passage, Romans 13, 12. And in Romans 13, 12, Paul will talk about how the day of the Lord is near. 13, 12, here we go. Thirteen. This is not as easy as it looks. Thirteen, twelve. The night is far spent or gone. The day is at hand. The day is near. And so he's talking about the day of the Lord, that it's at hand. Angus, it's near. Okay? You can find it also in James chapter 5, verse 8. James uses the same concept and speaks about how be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Angus, the coming of the Lord is Angus. Now, that's what a lot of scholars think that Paul means when he says the Lord is near. They think that Paul is referencing this idea. The problem I have with that is Paul doesn't say the day of the Lord is at hand. He doesn't say the coming is near. He says the Lord is near. It's missing the word Himera for day. It's missing coming. Uh, It's just the Lord is near is near, hokurio engus, and that's all it is. So within the framework of that, there's a second suggestion and a second group of scholars. The second group of scholars say, God's right next to you. God's right here. God's not off in a strange country and in a strange land. You're not doing this alone, Gwen. God is right next to you. You're not facing, Melvin Tinker's not facing this alone. God's right next to him. And if God is right next to you, honestly, who's going to lose their temper in the presence of the Lord? I mean, can you imagine? If God is right next to you, how would that affect your behavior? If you consciously realize that God was right next to you, How would that change the way you treat someone? How would that change your demeanor? How would that change your priorities? How would that change what you do? Hey, God, sit down with me and let's chew someone out. Hey, God, watch the way I can really hurt their feelings. You're going to love this one. And this idea that the Lord is near is something that, that it changes us. And, of course, I have a critical verse that I have disappear as soon as it appears. So we will now go and do that. Here is the verse. This is what Paul's doing. Paul's actually quoting Psalm 145, 18, I believe. The quote may be a little loose because Paul changes two words in its order. But it's the same idea. 145.18. In Psalm 145.18, it says in the Greek, the Lord is near. 
It says to all who call on him, which is everybody Paul's writing to, the Lord is near. Ho curios angus. The Lord is near. He's right there. That's task theology. If we put that passage up, here it is. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Translated 145.18, the Lord is near. Here it is. Karov Adonai. Um, Lakal, I can't see it that good. Uh, Korav. So, yeah, from Korav. That's to call. So, near God to all, the call who call on him. Him. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Angus, Kurios, instead of Kurios Angus. The Lord is near to all of those who epikaleo him, who call upon him. That's what Paul's saying. It's task theology. The Lord is near. I want to tell you something. I really believe this. I think that that idea of the Lord being near, it's a game changer. This, this, this totally changes any rough waters we sail in. Anything we go through. Oh, there was, uh, when I was in high school, there was the, it's kind of schmaltzy. Um... The, the thing about it is, even though it's kind of schmaltzy, it's really good. <laughs> so it's good schmaltz, okay? It's that footsteps in the sand thing, where there are the two sets of footprints as we walk along with Jesus, and then we hit the really rough time in life, and suddenly there's only one set of footprints in the stand while we go through the roughest part of life. We make it through, and then there's two sets again. And the person says, Jesus, why did you abandon me at the roughest time? What makes you think I abandoned you? There's only one set of footprints. Well, of course there's only one set. I was carrying you. And while that's kind of schmaltzy, it's really true. Daniel was not spared from the lion's den. God was with Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not spared from the fiery furnace. God was with them in the fiery furnace. My thoughts for the day this week are going to be lessons from the wilderness. God didn't save the Israelites from the wilderness. Rick Meadow told me this morning, he, I was telling him about it, and he said, yeah, one of our favorite sayings in Judaism is if Moses had just turned right instead of left, we'd have gotten the oil. God, God didn't just eliminate the need for the wilderness. But God led them through the wilderness. And he provided the manna they needed. And he provided the meat they needed. And he provided the water they needed. And he taught them the lessons they needed. This is not an easy life. But this is a life where we can be joyful and where we can show kindness and courteousness to others because God is near. And that's a game changer. It's not just a game changer. I'll go a step further. 
And I'll tell you, it's a life-changing mindset because it radically changes the way we think and the way we act. And so this is task theology. The Lord is right next to you. The Lord is near. The Lord is with you. And that enables you to be different than you are. It's what enables you to rejoice always. To let your kindness be shown. And it's also what enables you to do the third task that Paul gives you. So the third task is about worry. And I looked up on the internet and said, well, what are the big worries right now in the world? And there was this website that listed uh, uh, based on polls of different countries. And I thought it's interesting to see how this compares to our worries. So this is what the polls showed. Top five concerns in July of this year on worries for the world. Now, this is a global country average. Coronavirus was winning at 36%. Unemployment, right behind at 32%. Poverty, which includes economic hardship, and any social inequality was at 31%. Financial and political corruption, 30%. Crime and violence, 26%. Now, those are the world's worries. What about your worries? A poll came out just recently, I think it was last week, that said 77% of Americans are anxious about their financial situation. One of the articles I pulled up said, here's how to take control. I didn't read it. I don't know if it's helpful or not. I was just interested in the headline. 77% of Americans are anxious, are worried about their financial situation. So Paul gives us a third task here. He says, don't be anxious. That, that this anxious doesn't mean, oh, I'm looking forward to this. Anxious means I'm worried don't be worried about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, if you look at this carefully, don't be worried about anything. Maiden means in nothing, in nothing. Um, Merimnade is, is, is be worried. So he's saying be worried in nothing. And that's an injunction, again. I mean, a, a, an imperative again. That's an instruction. And I want you to see this because Paul writes with a syndeton. He, he writes with no extra words that, that would provide the lilt of normal Greek. Because this is staccato. This is punchy. This whole passage has been that way. You know, hokuriosengus. Uh, uh, you know, kairote and kurio pantote, palanero kairote. It's the whole thing is just pa-bom, 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 pa-bom in the Greek. It's very staccato. Very boom, 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 boom. And this is no difference. Don't worry. But there's a second thing I want you to see here, and that is that this command, this imperative here, is in the present tense. That means this is something that's happening right then and there. And so what Paul's really saying, in other words, they're worrying right now. And Paul says, stop it. Stop worrying. You don't need to worry. And God is near. You don't need to worry. We don't worry the way the rest of the world does. Instead, what we do is in everything, in ponte, in everything, by prayer, 
and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is interesting. If you're reading this in Greek, you've got prosecho is, is, uh, is, is prayer. It means basically to come before the temple. Uh, it, it, it's prayer, to come before the presence of God. And then he says, and, and then he's got this word, this diese here. It means prayer. So he says prayer in two different ways. Um, you've, you've got prosecco, and then you've got uh, uh, diomai, you've got uh, uh, this, this diese. It's, it's just another way of saying prayer, but this has got a little more pleading to it, like please. It's a please prayer. So he says, pray, say please, and then he adds, with thanksgiving, let your requests, which is another word for prayers. Paul uses three different words for praying, not so much because of the nuanced difference in meaning, I think more just because he just wants us to see it and he wants us to grab it. Whatever your phrase is, whatever your word is, take it to the Lord. You remember the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, All Our Sins and Griefs to Bear, What a Privilege to Carry Everything to God in Prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And so Paul says, stop worrying. And then three times he says, just ask God. It's like he says, seriously, ask God. He says, I'm not joking. Ask God. I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you. Ask God. You don't need to worry about this stuff. And oh, by the way, when you do, do it with thanksgiving. Do it with faith and confidence that he's going to hear the prayer. You say, well, he didn't answer it the way I wanted him to on the big one. Why should I trust him now? Because he'll always answer it in accordance with his will and his plan. And he's got to work this Sudoku puzzle out where we have choice and yet his will is done. And sometimes that means that believers are called to suffer. And sometimes that means we don't always get what we want. If Mick Jagger can understand that, surely the church can. <laughs> this, is, this is what we're about here. Let me put it personal. If God said to me, look, I need this world to work out and for it to work out the right way for my kingdom and for eternity, I'm going to need to take something from you that's very dear to you. And I'm sorry and it grieves me, and it's going to hurt you deep. But it's necessary for this to work out. Can I rely on you not to hold it against me, but to find joy in the journey in spite of it? I don't know what I would say. You know, Heather Tinker's sitting there thinking that the husband that had retired so that they could spend time together may not be with her as long as they had planned. And I can't put myself in her shoes. And I can't tell you how I would react. 
Oh, in the pious mark, I tell you how I'd like to react. I'd like to say, Lord, I'm going to count this as suffering for the cause of Christ. And I will do it with rejoicing in my heart. And I will be a testimony to the world that there is a good God who is working all things out to the good of his kingdom. And I got to play a role at great personal cost. And for that, I will reckon it all joy. I'd love that pious intellectual answer, frankly. I don't know that my heart would be there. And it might take years for my heart to get there. But that's my prayer because that's what Paul's driving us toward. That's what Paul's trying to explain here. Paul's trying to say, you can let your request, let your supplication, but do it with thanksgiving because you're trusting in a faithful God. And he may answer that prayer, yes. He may answer that prayer, no. He may answer that prayer with, hang on for a while. But whatever his answer is, is his answer for his kingdom's good, and that's what we're in for. So if his answer involves you suffering, you're suffering for the cause of Christ. That's pretty cool. Because Christ sure suffered for your cause. And he, Christ said, if anyone wants to walk after me, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So if you can suffer for the good of God's kingdom, you're doing the very thing Christ did. And that's an amazing thing. So with this, we let our requests be made known to God. By the way, I, because I just think Paul's so clever. I can't pass this up without pointing out, going to Rizzo here, um, the, the word for make known. It's a play off what Paul's already said. Paul said for us to let our kindness be known to others. And now he's saying, and let your requests be made known to God. And he's just making that play. And it's just worth doing because he's such a cool, stinking writer. So he says, let your request be made known to God. God is near. Let him know what you need. And well, doesn't he know? He's right here. Yes, but he set up a system where you're supposed to ask him because that's how you learn to rely on him. And that's how you learn to see him. And that's how when it happens, you give him the credit and the glory. And that's what this is about. So Paul's the task theologian. The Lord is near so we can rejoice. We can let our kindness be known. And we can pray with thanksgiving. And Paul says when you do that, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God will encamp around you. God will protect you. God will see you through. And that's glorious. So that's the lesson. Here are your points to ponder. Kairate. Kairate and curio pantote. Palanero kairate. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. We rejoice. We are kind. We will let our reasonableness, our kindness be known to everyone. We will stop our worrying and start our praying. And we will worry in nothing but pray, pray, pray. Because of the theology, God is near. So catch the task, all three of them. Catch the theology and let it transform who you are. 
It's time for church, but let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask your blessing on all who hear this message. That we will all see you near, right at hand, in us, around us. And Father, that it will be reflected in the way we behave, in the way we live, that we'll be tolerant and kind and considerate. That we won't be people robbed of joy, but we'll be people who rejoice in the midst of whatever this world has. And that we will seek you as the one near us and ask you and talk to you and thank you for being a, the Lord of our lives. Impart your peace to us, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.